How do we disagree like Christians? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hear of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. Brian, today we are discussing a, you know, a topic that none of us have a problem with whatsoever. We're all really good at this, so this is going to be a nice, tight, short episode for us, I think. Um, and by that, I mean like 47 hours long, because we all are the worst at, at doing this effectively. We are going to, we are looking at Mark 12 verses 13 through 37, which uh, bring us to the Tuesday morning of, of the Passion Week. Yeah. And, you know, the leading question, how do we disagree like Christians? I think the answer is quite a lot and on Twitter. Mm. That's true. That's kind of a summary of it. So now we can just move on to the next episode. (laughs) Um, Man, so now in this, so yeah, good. we're we're looking at yeah we're looking at Mark twelve, and it's this uh, another one of the chapters added to my list of of passages I really enjoy up in my favorites uh, because you just have these little vignettes of uh, these encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees and, and Sadducees who are trying to trick him and entrap him, and while it's not quite the context of us disagreeing as believers. I think we're going to see there are uh, natural uh, application points that, that we can find. And as you said, setting the context for this, uh, again, this episode is one of several in a row, which we will be in this final week of Jesus' earthly ministry leading up to the, the crucifixion and resurrection. And we are on Tuesday. If you listened to the last episode, uh, we started on Sunday with the triumphal entry. We have skipped Monday. Monday would have been where Jesus cursed the fig tree as he went back into Jerusalem. And then this request by some Greeks to, to speak with Jesus, and Jesus kind of teaches a little bit after that. On Tuesday, he goes back into Jerusalem, and they see the withered fig tree after he cursed it the day before. Then we have this encounter with the challenges, and after this will be the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus goes to a, pretty a long teaching on, on eschatology, really. So we're going to focus on the challenges here of the Pharisees and Sadducees because it's so important to, to connect what has happened the last year or so, especially of Jesus' ministry, when they turned against him in full. First, we have to remember, at first, the Pharisees and Sadducees were kind of open. Uh, it seems like their early encounters with Jesus was a little bit more searching. They were doubtful, perhaps, but they were open. And by this point, they're, they're militantly hostile and they're looking for a reason to condemn Jesus, as, as we're going to see in a minute. And so it, it, it kind of connects back with what has happened. And of course, it will lead us forward to what will happen with them making a deal with Judas, Judas betraying and, and the arrest and so forth. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's do what has increasingly become our practice on the show. And uh, because the passage is short enough, let's actually read this. So. Here are the disagreements that, uh, that come up here between Jesus and the religious leaders, and these are so much fun. So <laughs> <laughs> the first one is this. Uh, then, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the, and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. That's always the great way to start an encounter with Jesus, by the way. <laughs> When yeah. they came, it's not going to go bode well. <laughs> no, no. If your goal is, man, let's let's trap the Son of God here, because totally we can we can pull one over on him. Um, <laughs> when they came, they said to him, "Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks. Nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we?" But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is on this? He asked them. Caesar's. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the thing that are Caesar's, and give to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote 
for us that if a, bro- a man's brother dies, leaving, bu- leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and, and dying left no offspring. The second took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Then he keeps going. One of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked, which, is the most imp- which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important listen is, listen, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. The Lord, uh, love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love your neighbor with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared question him any longer. While Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said, how, many, how can the scribes say the Messiah is the son of David? David himself says by the Holy Spirit, The Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can, be he, how can he be his son? And the large crowd was listening to him with delight. That is... This is why this is one of our favorite passages of scripture here on our way too long a list here, because we get hardcore snarky Jesus in the best way possible, (laughs) sanctified snark all through this, man. It is so good. (laughs) I just love, I love imagining how this played out that day. And and in my mind, I see, it is this big crowd. That last verse clues us in. There's a large crowd around. And I just see the Pharisees and Sadducees kind of in separate groups, of course, because they didn't quite get along. And they're kind of in the outside. Jesus is in the center of this big crowd, kind of some space around him. And they like, they tap each other like, all right, let's, let's, let's have a go at him. Come on, we're, we're going to take him down. And so the Pharisees go first and they're like, yeah, who should we pay taxes or not? Ooh, we got you. And then Jesus puts them in their place and they kind of turn around tail between their legs, retreat. Then the Sadducees are like, okay, we got this one. And they go up and they're like, no, wait a minute. Yeah, let's give you this absurd story of multiple marriages and so forth. Yeah, isn't the resurrection silly? Ooh, we've got you, don't we? And Jesus again puts them, and it's like this repeat, just one after another trying to take out Jesus and they both just, or they all just, just are, they all get destroyed uh, in this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then Jesus finally said, all right, enough of this. Yeah. Let me turn the tables. Yeah. And, uh, and ask them this stumper. And the crowd just sitting there going, ooh, ooh, ah, <laughs> every time. I just love this encounter. Yeah. Oh, it's so, it's so much fun. And um, yeah, it, yeah, I, I love it. I love it so much. It is so entertaining for me just even just from a pure, like just a storytelling standpoint. Yeah. Mark is not known for being a particularly um, like great storyteller. He's a very efficient writer. Yes. He gives you a good way to put it. Yeah. He gives the information you need. And then he is, uh, you know, in leadership personality tests, there's like this one that is uh, like a color wheel and it's so like it's it's like blue red green and yeah. yellow or something He's like red. that he is hard he is the hardcore red gospel writer luke I, is i've got the, that is the blue I, i've got that 
we, we use that personality um, type. And, and so I've got some blocks showing them. And the red one, it's labeled this way. Be brief, be bright, be gone. Yes. <laughs> yep. That's kind of Mark. Yep. Absolutely. Luke wants you to have all the details. Use blue. Give me the details. Um, what is the yellow one? Involve me. Which one do you think is that? And green is show me you care. I feel like the yellow is going to be Matthew and John is going to be green. John is definitely green because he refers to himself as a disciple whom Jesus loved. He talks about that a lot more. We see it in his epistles. Yep. So I think he is, is safely green. Um, is is yeah, Matthew yeah. maybe teal? Yeah, Matthew is... Um, I don't know. I don't know if... if I'd have to think about it. He's got a little bit of everything going, doesn't he? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, this is a... uh, Are we forcing it to call him yellow? But you could say, well, involve me. He's trying to show how Israel is part of this. Sure. He does involve himself in the story. He does. But it feels forced. Anyway. 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 So we're we're adding... We're we're forcing a... uh, um, uh, a construct on scripture that that shouldn't be there. So, no. uh, yeah. so let's continue on with not doing that. Um, <laughs> instead, let's go let's back get, into scripture. That's right. Let's get back to the Bible where we should be. So, um, <laughs> so this is a big, big passage. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. It's crazy and awesome. Um, what are some of the questions that we should be asking whenever we're reading and studying it? Yeah, I, I think there are two major questions. And my thinking is, let me kind of break down the first one, just a quick one. And the second one, let's just take some turns and, and, and unpack it. So the first question is, what was the reason for these challenges? Now, again, we kind of pick up on it some in reading it. But many times I was in a small group, leading a small group last night. I asked them a question intentionally that was answered later in the passage because I wanted to show them a lot of times the question we have are answered in the scripture. We have to pay attention. Same thing here. We didn't start by reading it, but the answer to why they're doing this is actually in verse 12, the verse that precedes this. And in that verse, we read, they were looking, they meaning the, the religious leaders, we're looking for a way to arrest him, but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. So that is referencing the parable of the vineyard owner just before this. But notice what happens. This Again, we saw this, this progression of hostility and outright rejection by the leaders. They have had their fill. They were looking for a way to deal with with Jesus at this point. But they knew they couldn't because if they arrested him, Jesus had a popular following. So their thinking is this. If we can confront him in public and challenge him and get him to show a face that the people don't like, that gives us an opening to arrest him and deal with him. So that is the context by which we have to read each of these challenges, each of the three challenges toward Jesus. They're all looking for an angle. So I think it would be fun if we just break them down one at a time. I'll let you go first if you want and kind of explain what was the angle of the leaders in God and Caesar in verses 13 through 17. And then how did Jesus respond to it and, and for lack of a better word, escape the, the trap? Yeah. Uh, well, he, the first one, of course, is is the the debate between God and Caesar. So, or um, how we often approach it today is: do we have to? Do we still have to pay taxes if we're Christians? Come on. <laughs> and let's be clear: the answer is yes. Yes. So we don't get in any trouble. Correct. Pay your taxes. Correct. You know why? Because it is not a sin to pay your taxes. You are. It is yeah. not. A, the government's got to run somehow, and we live under the government. That is under God, under the government, or beside the government, however you want to say it. <laughs> uh, let's Caddy just get corner. ourselves in more trouble. Uh, <laughs> anyway, as long as you live in the country you live in, and if it has taxes, yes, you are required to pay them. So, um, because paying taxes does not violate God's law. So, The crux of this is what they wanted to do was they were trying to get Jesus to either do one of two things, to 
align himself with Rome. Now, which would have been problematic for uh, the key reason that Rome was the the Roman government was an, an oppressive regime. And so they so the people of of Judea, they were not free to to live as they wanted to um, entirely for them. The, the interesting thing about the Roman government is, generally speaking, they were pretty chill with whatever you wanted to do to a degree, to a degree. Yeah. Pax Romana. Yeah, as yeah. long as as long as you didn't cause trouble, they would give you relative freedom. But still, yes. but still, it, Israel was not free to do exactly. And there were all these Roman soldiers, and they were still paying extra taxes to Rome. Yes, because so they, it wasn't a utopian no, arrangement. No, it was it was an arrangement of convenience, um, and so that's that's just how it worked. So there, so uh, had they managed to trap get Jesus to to trap him be entrapped into saying that he agreed that he aligned with rome um he would be placed in the same category that tax collectors would have yes they were seen as traitors to the to the the jews because they were the ones who were taking the money from the jews that that would have immediately shifted the people's view of jesus and they would have been hostile and they would have been happy probably had he been arrested by the absolutely he would they would have been so that's that's piece number one. Piece number two here is um, is the flip side of that is to align himself with the insurrectionists. So the people who were rebelling against the rule of Rome over Judea, because this was a gr- there were groups like this. One of Jesus, uh, one of the twelve, was one of them. Simon the Zealot. The zealot. <laughs> Um, so he was a recovering re- rebel, and so this is so this is this was just part of the air that was breathed there, and many false messiahs who showed up before Jesus and after Jesus were part of this insurrectionist group, um, and ultimately we know their their acts led to led to the sacking of Jerusalem in AD seventy, and yep. so that um, so that was the fruit of their labor. So if Jesus had aligned himself with Rome, he would have been rejected by the people. Had he aligned himself against Rome, they would have had cause to have him arrested as a criminal and for treason. And so Jesus is much, much smarter, though, because and not just because he's God. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, because... He knows. He he knows how people people work. Um, what his his response is is that Rome has its things, but God has His. Give to each accordingly. And so this is why we said in a very long winded, convoluted way. Even as we started this, yeah, pay your taxes. Yeah. But give to you, God. You're what's not God's. robbing from God. Yeah, you're not robbing from God by paying your taxes. You're being obedient. Yes. Uh, so yeah, it, it's it's. A, I think what Jesus, what he's doing there, he's saying it's not binary. Yeah, this is it's not, not a simple all choice or nothing either or exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we don't need false dichotomies, and 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 that's something that's that's an important principle for us to apply in in a broader perspective. We often think that everything has to be simple black and whites. And so when, yeah. and in all spheres of life, we're not even going to give examples because we'll miss something and we'll get in trouble. <laughs> and both of us like to be employed. <laughs> yes. I, I like to eat. Yeah. My kids like to eat too. So, uh, so oh, we're yeah, not I, I, to yeah I've got kids to feed too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. So, um, but, but this is the thing is, is, uh, very often, there are certain things that yes, there absolutely are a simple yes or no, or this or that choice. So, for example, Jesus or not Jesus, that's <laughs> that's a simple binary. <laughs> that that um, is, um, and it's a true, but it's a legitimate one. Yes, but there are others that are not, and so you guys can take a look at what people are squabbling about on Twitter, and you'll have a pretty good idea of what exactly. are not. So that's one. Now, Brian, I know you're going to cover the the next one, 
And I'm super jealous of you because this is actually my favorite piece. Well, why don't you, I'm, I wanted the primary commands, the third one. So why don't you take this one? And I'll take the last two. I'm going to do it then. That's right. All right. Okay. Have at it. So this one is my favorite, partly because of just how Jesus goes off on the Sadducees. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so what they are doing is they are, the, the whole debate with their silly story of, um, a woman who's been married to seven brothers and all of this and doesn't have any kids. And which one is, which one is she married to? And it's, it's silly intentionally. We can't miss that. Yes, it, it is. is abs- they are pouring it on. Yes. On purpose. Yes. It is intentionally absurd. That's, that is a point. That's often a, a, a teaching trick that people have or a, um, or a, all, uh, sometimes an effective teaching teaching trick, but also it's also a um, a really annoying bad argument trick too. So, um, <laughs> well, be careful because um, Jesus used it in the parable he, of of the the servant. Remember, there was a servant who owed yep. a lot of money, and then went out and harassed the servant who owed him a little bit. It, that's right. an intentionally absurd parable. It is, and so, but here's this is why I said it's either of it's often a very in, effective teaching teaching tip trick or it's or it's an annoying argument one when jesus does it it's very effective (laughs) when these guys try to do it against jesus it's not so good (laughs) so that's my point um (laughs) point taken there you go i believe the i believe the the technical term for it is uh reducto ad absurdum (laughs) (laughs) so uh so reduced to the most absurd level possible um but uh, but their whole big idea with this story really is to force Jesus to say that the doctrine of the resurrection is absurd or to discount Old Testament law. Again, there's that false, that false choice there. Um, the thing that's important to know about the Sadducees is, um, is they, and this is stated in the text, they denied the resurrection. Um, most of the people did not, and certainly the Bible does not. So if you think about um, if you think about them in a modern context, uh, think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees from this point of view. Um, this may be a little bit too simplistic, so understand all caveats are in. We've done it. Um, but um, if you think about the think about the Sadducees as um, the you know the back to the Bible conservative slash fundamentalists um, in many ways. So um, you know for um, so so that would be that one that one side. The Sadducees on the other side are the anti supernatural. Uh, depending on the language that you of that you prefer, the theologically liberal, theologically. Per- progressive theologically schismatic um though i think that's uh that's trevin's preferred term is uh is schismatic actually (laughs) um but um and i like that one so that's that that's them in their modern in in their modern context and so these debates are still going today among people who who profess to know god and so um so that's that's who they are and Jesus's response is breathtaking because it's the only, it's pretty much the only time he ever goes here when he says, the problem is you don't know the Bible. Yeah. The problem is you don't know what you're talking about. Well, the Bible that or is, God. He says, yeah, you don't know either. Yeah. He's like, you know nothing about what you're talking about here. And that is just mind blowing <laughs> that he'll go there when he when he like he gets close um, a couple of times with the Pharisees as well. John chapter five, he says he says, you know, yep. you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life, but you don't realize that they point to me. What they're doing is they're testifying about me. Um, and that's what and, and so that was his rebuke to to the Pharisees. Um, you know, you may know the Bible really well, but you're missing the point. For them, it's you don't know, and you don't know this book at all, and you don't know the God that it's about. And that is that it just takes it to a completely different level. So yes. here's how he here's how he points 
this out. He's, he his point is is that when he talks about human beings um, not being married or given in marriage in the new, in in the new creation, what he is saying is is that um, marriage marriage doesn't exist there because its intent is fulfilled. We see later in the we see later in scripture that the intent of marriage is really to be essentially a living parable of the gospel itself. Um, that as men and women mutually submit to one another in their different roles within marriage, they are, show, they are demonstrating how Christ loves his church and how the church um, and how the church um, loves and submits to him. That is, that's what's happening in marriage. That doesn't need to happen in the new creation because that's fulfilled there. Um, so this law is essentially moot. It is a time, it is a time frame law. Um, and so it will be fulfilled. It will be complete. And then further, he goes on to suggest that the resurrection, that to, he, what he does here is, is he says that to suggest that the resurrection is not real would make God a buffoon for saying that he is the God of those who have, he is the God of those who have died, not those who not that he was past tense. That is the God of is really, really important. Yeah. So that also gives us good confidence to see who we're actually going to like, who we're going to meet in, um, you know, in, in the new heavens and the new earth as well, that we actually are going to get to meet Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that should give us a little bit of hope too, because they were a bunch of knuckleheads just like us. (laughs) Exactly. Let me point out, <clears throat> Sorry. It's okay. Let me point out before we move on one point of uh, confusion that can arise from this passage we just looked at that Jesus says that there will be neither uh, marriage nor are they given in marriage, but we'll be like the angels in heaven. What, what Jesus is not saying is that we will become angels. Mm-hmm. Th- that is a false teaching, that is a Hollywoodism. What he means there is just in this in this one way that he's he's speaking of no marriage. Angels are not married. We will not be married. That's it. You you can't push that any farther. Jesus is not saying anything beyond that, comparing yeah. us to angels. Yeah, and that's an important point. And for those who want to know more about what angels are and are not, um, we did a we did an episode of the show a few months back on on the nature of yeah. angels. We've also got a short video for it in um, in the 99 Essential Doctrines as well. Yeah. So moving on to the third uh, attempt to trick Jesus, we get to what can be considered the primary commands discussion. This is in verse 28 through 34. And I'm glad that you deferred this to me because this is the one I wanted to talk about. Um, the crux here of, of this argument is that the, the scribes, um, one of them goes up to Jesus, and again, the scribes, we, we can't discount them. We kind of think of a scribe as a you know glorified um, writer or note-taker or whatever. No, the scribes are students of the law. They knew the Bible pretty well. Uh, they would do a lot of teaching. So don't, don't dismi- diminish who the scribes were. So this scribe would have been really well familiar with the Old Testament law. And he knew that there were 613 Old Testament commands in total. The problem was, when you think about that many commands, there are going to be times in life when two commands will be in opposition to one another. You will find yourself, in a, especially on the Sabbath, um, you're supposed to rest. And what happens if something prompts itself to work? What happens if you know a tree falls on a family member? Can you lift that tree well, you're violating the Sabbath by working, but then if you don't lift the tree, you're violating the law of not caring for this person. So a lot of times, and that's an overly simplistic example of it, but a lot of times laws would clash. And so what the rabbis did is they, they really thought through, okay, well, what do we do in that situation? What do we do? How can we coach people how to live when the law seems to, to conf- conflict? Uh, what can we do? So what they did is rabbis came up with different ways to to analyze each law and weigh them, put them in two categories usually, 
one category would be called the heavy laws and the other category would be called the light laws. What that meant was that the heavy laws were the more important ones. The light laws were not unimportant, but they were not as important. So if you ever had a heavy law going head to head with a light law and you had to choose one, you could not obey both, you would choose the heavy at the expense of the light law. That's the idea. It was really well received. It was a common idea, a common way to, to, to deal with this issue. The problem was there was a great disagreement on what was heavy and what was light. As you can understand, um, imagine the Twitter battles waging against, you know, about that. Man. So you would have one rabbi who he would have one system. You'd have another rabbi with another system, and there's cause for debate. So what is going on here? The crux of, of this scribe, he is trying to get Jesus to verbalize which camp, which tribe of his day Jesus aligns with. He wanted Jesus to say, I am with rabbi such and such. I believe this is how you can tell which are the heavy and which are the light laws. If Jesus were to do that, it's not hard to see the problem it would be. Because then you'd have all the other rabbis and their pupils upset because Jesus has basically said they're wrong. So it again, all these are clever from a human lens, from a failure to understand who Jesus is lens. You got to pat the Pharisees and, and scribes and Sadducees in the back. They they actually had a couple of good attempts here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what the, the scribe was anticipating. Yeah. Uh, you know, before we go on to this one, I do think it's interesting, though, that this scribe He's kind of unique in all of them because he doesn't like the text doesn't say that he was going about trying to trick them. It almost seems like he's coming in and he's he's just overhearing everything. Yeah, I I I think at least his what he comes out of this. So he he starts, but he says, "Hey, um, he heard them debating. He saw Jesus answered them well. So he asked. So it could be maybe, maybe I'm." I'm speaking too strongly. Maybe it is less of a trying to trap him and more of a... Um, but if it were that, then I'm sure the Sadducees and Pharisees nearby would have been saying, yeah, go ahead and answer this because for the same reason we just gave. Totally. He, he, would, he would find himself in opposition. And then afterwards, this scribe says Jesus answered well and so forth, and Jesus tells him, hey, you're not far away. Um, so yeah, probably need to give him more credit. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing, real quick on this one, before we go on to the next one, and I know you're you're getting really excited and irritated with me for interrupting you constantly. Um, the other thing that is super cool about this one is this isn't the first time that Jesus addressed this yeah. as well. But this, but because the last time that someone tried, they were they were overtly trying to trap it, trap yeah. him. And so we don't want people, when you read this, don't mistake this as a parallel passage. Um, because this one, this, this scribe says, says that you, you've answered correctly. These are the two most important things. And in, rather, than saying, rather than saying what the, when it happened the last time, oh, but who's, who's my neighbor? My neighbor? <laughs> yeah. So are you done interrupting? Can I, I, can I'm I go I'm absolutely on done interrupting you for the next two Until to three time. seconds. <laughs> All right. So what happens is Jesus responds with this amazing solution to this. And he says, all right, here, you, you want to know how to do this? Here's the greatest command. The greatest command is, is to love the Lord your God. And then the second one um, is like it. it. It's to love your neighbor. And really, he says, there is no other command greater than these. So he, he fuses them together. In the other passage you're referring, he says, you know, all the law hinges on these two commands. Here he says it a little bit differently. But it, when you think about it, it makes total sense, doesn't it? That when you, when you start to analyze all 613 of those Old Testament laws, when you just look at the Ten Commandments, we know we're familiar with the two tables of the Ten Commandments, the, the, the horizontal and the vertical, or the vertical and the horizontal. Um, you know, we see this, that our relationship with God, and we know we're big about this in the gospel project. We don't obey just because we have to. We do have to, but that should not be our posture. Our posture should be one of desiring to. It should be love 
which prompts us to want to obey. And so there's this love for God to help us obey in that direction. It, it prompts our worship. It prompts our sacrifice. It prompts everything. But then horizontally, we are not saved to live in isolation. We're saved to live in community and to make God's glory known. And so a lot of the other laws then, or all the other laws, would connect with our love for others. Why do I not steal? It's not just because God told me not to, but I should love that other person enough not to want to take the stuff from from him or her. So really, I mean, it comes down to it. it's, It's that's the heartbeat. And so I think he would say to the Jew of that day, hey, this is what you're after. You're after remembering love. And what is the most loving thing you can do toward God and somebody else in that moment? The absurd example I gave of, of a tree falling on somebody on the Sabbath, it's loving is, is helping that person. That's what should motivate you. How can I make much of God? How can I love others? So it, of course, is a clear uh, response that just, that's why this, this scribe is like, man, you've spoken well here. Um, that then takes us to the final encounter where Jesus turns around in verses 35 through 37, and he says, all right, it's my turn. Let me ask you a question. And what Jesus does is he refers to the Psalms where David wrote, and he, he's clear. He says, now, we know that David's inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote the Psalms. And of course, the leaders would have had to agree with that. But notice, Jesus says, that David called his descendant, who would, the Messiah who he's talking about in this psalm, he calls him Lord. Why would he do that? Now, here's what Jesus is getting after. Lord is kind of like sir. Lord can be used in many different ways in Scripture. One, one sense is simply sir. It's a, it's a title of respect. But a title of respect would flow up toward the ancestors, not down toward descendants. So, Aaron, you and I are both parents. We're both fathers. We do not call our kids sir. They call us sir. It's the, the respect goes up, not down. And so Jesus is saying, wait a minute. Why would David call his descendant sir? It's backwards. Unless there is something different about this descendant, this Messiah that he's describing, that he was not a mere descendant. He was not a mere person. There is more to it. And of course, we know it's because he is the son of God. David is using Lord in a more technical sense of God, acknowledging divinity inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is something that the the leaders cannot respond to. They can't address. Um, There's no answer beyond the obvious answer that we just talked about. So once again, we see Jesus just kind of turning things around, demonstrating his great wisdom. And, uh, and just, again, I love how it ends. The large crowd listening to him with delight. That is, that is something that, that I, I really do love, that those little nuggets are there in Scripture. And I know this is, and as we transition into thinking about how we can um, provide guidance for people who are discipling others and walking through this passage, you know, that really is a key thing is that we, we should always remember that whenever we are coming to, when we are talking about Jesus, when we are studying the word, when we are exploring the depths of the gospel, the goal is delight. It's not just, it's not to know, just to know stuff. As important as knowing stuff is, because you can't really delight in what you don't know, but that's the end goal. So, um, so thinking about, about this though, um, in light of that as well, one of the things that we do need to recognize is that, um, and that we can take away from this passage is, um, that we can see these, these, these examples and these encounters that Jesus has as, um, reminders of our need to handle God's word with care. Jesus affirms the inspiration of scripture. He argues based on verb tenses, is and was is. He argues based on single words like Lord. And so we can't ignore that. And we can't, we can't throw those things out and say, well, it's just semantics because no, it's not. The way that Jesus treats words reminds us that words matter. 
Well, and it's an affirmation of we have to link together a lot of terms, unfortunately, today, mm-hmm. but verbal plenary inspiration, that every word of Scripture is inspired in the original autographs. Every word is inspired by God and is is there on purpose. And yeah. that, I mean, that's what we see. I mean, even a verb tense, it, Jesus is not like, well, you know, it's interesting how Moses uses this verb tense. No, it's God who used that verb yeah. tense, and he bases the argument on that. Yeah. So it's just it's a clear support for those of us who would hold to every word of scripture being inspired. Yeah. Not uh, just the ideas, not just the thoughts. Right. But the words. Right. And so in that we should we should follow Jesus' example. We should treat the scriptures with honor. We should treat them holistically. We should recognize that the words that were inspired in yes, in the original in the original manuscripts Understanding that you know we have good confidence to believe that yes. the the Bible we have today is the is the Bible yes. as it was in it communicates the same message, um, all of that holds together. We need to treat it with appropriate honor and respect, respect, especially in how we handle it ourselves. Yeah, let me let me just take a, a brief detour just for a yeah. second because there might be somebody listening who thinks we're dancing around something and and not affirming the English language Bibles we hold in our hands. And I just want to be clear about something. The reason why Aaron and I are are mentioning the original writings a couple of times is because technically inspiration extends to the original writings, not necessarily the English versions that we have or if you have a different language. But what Aaron just said is really critical. We would also believe and, and support strongly that God has providentially passed down to us a Bible that is amazingly accurate in the translated languages, but we have to admit there are a handful of problem passages where the manuscript evidence was a little bit confusing, or there may have been a handful of copyist mistakes. Mm-hmm. These are minimal. A good Bible will generally note them somewhere, um, and so it, they are they're a handful, but that's why Aaron and I the kings of caveat, we're, we're trying to be careful to acknowledge what the theology of inspiration is, but at the same time, we want to let you know, without a doubt, we hold dearly, you know, I've got my CSB open right in front of me, this is the Word of God. I go to it, I study the Word, and I believe the words on this page, 99 point repeating 9% are absolutely accurate, and even that ones that are question mark, it's a question mark. It's not that they're wrong or an error knowingly. Yeah. It's just there are a couple that we're just not quite sure about. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, and it's really help and and that is really helpful. It's a good caveat. Thank you for for making sure we had one more in this episode. Uh, because we needed it. Um, we, have, we have to fill our quota. Absolutely. Absolutely. If there's not one for each point, then we're in trouble. But our sponsors uh, will get really upset if we don't have enough caveats. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But I, I do think it is. I do think it is important that uh, that again that we that we remind people that we also need to remember too that um, we like people can use the original language argument incorrectly to sow distrust in yeah. the scriptures as well, and so. Um, I've heard it this this way. Probably the the most dangerous uh, person with a Bible is a first year seminary student with like a semester <laughs> of Greek in him. So yes. um, <laughs> because they know only enough to be dangerous, um, yes. but not enough to be useful. Um, the same is true for um, for folks who only have Bible study tools, but don't know what the don't don't know how to interpret those things. So I love Bible study tools. Um, I freely admit I am not trained in original languages. Um, I trust the work of others on that, but I read lots of different things. And so that's, that's the cheat sheet way, by the way, guys, of how you, how you do this is read good commentaries, but read different perspectives in those Mm -hmm. commentaries. Don't just read from one theological tradition, um, one publishing stream, um, or anything like that. Get people who who you would wrestle with, including those people who even Jesus would say the problem is you don't know the Bible and you don't know God. 
Yeah. I, and I think – let me just go through the second big idea because you are taking us right up to the third big idea of, sure of how <laughs> – you know, what we need to talk about with, with those who are discipling. Let's talk about the second one real quick and then get back to what you're saying. This, the second one, just a big idea is we see the wisdom of Christ here. We've mentioned it before. Every time the leaders come and they think they have this, aha, I got you moment that was irrefutable, what did Jesus do? He turned it around. But he didn't turn around based on his, you know, hey, let me out logic you. He, he used the word of God. He used scripture. He used God's truth. Um, and, and not only in what he said, but how he said it, how he went about. So wisdom and clarity of Jesus. And, and so that's just something that we, we need to show the people we're discipling and point them to how beautiful Jesus is, how great he is. But the third big idea is, is what we let off this show. How do we handle disagreements and attacks? And Aaron, what you just said is so important. So I wanted to, to double click on it. Mm-hmm. I would believe one of the best ways we can learn to disagree in a, in a winsome way as believers is to swim in streams that we're not most comfortable in. That when you, know, you pick your theological camp and there's nothing wrong unless it's a heretical camp, as long as it's evangelical, orthodox, whatever, however you want to qualify that, but as long as it's, it affirms the gospel and so forth, swim in that. Go ahead. But don't just stay in there. Um, read others. Read other uh, perspectives. Uh, I would encourage you, as you were intimating, even read some people who you know are wrong, even ones that are farther off the reservation. Um, I think it's important. Read the works of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the world think about the Bible and about Jesus. Now you have to read differently. We don't read everything the same way. We, we need to read anytime we need to read with discernment, but increase discernment when we're reading some other things. But in my estimation, one of the best things we can do is spend time not only to understand what they're thinking better so we don't misrepresent it and caricaturize, which is easy to do and dismiss, but also, I, there are many times that we start to understand why certain people believe what they do. For example, I'm in a PhD seminar right now on preaching, and we had to read Carl Barth's hermeneutics. Now, Karl Bar- Barth started as a liberal, a theological liberal in Europe in the 20s, 30s, and so forth. He turned away from that, but he didn't land exactly where I think we would say conservative, orthodox, evangelical. One of the issues, for example, his his understanding of inspiration is wonky. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, his his inspiration of the Bible is a little bit more subjective. As we read, it becomes inspired. His My practice of marital fidelity was also questionable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so you read Karl Barth's hermeneutics, and one of the things that kind of raises your eyebrow. But then you're also he he really beats up on sermon introductions. He's like, don't do an introduction. Just get preach the text. Mm-hmm. And illustrations. Don't illustrate it. Just preach the text. And you read it, and you're like, okay, he's kind of cranky. I kind of like that. But he's a cranky <laughs> theologian. You know, why is he ba- Why can't we have an introduction? But then you understand what he was dealing with through that, that lecture series at the, the beginning of Nazi Germany's rule. And what was happening was that the, the Nazis were leaning in on pastors to lift up Nazism from the pulpits. And guess what a lot of the introductions were? Nazi propaganda. Mm -hmm. So what is Barth addressing there? He's addressing Nazi propaganda in an introduction. The lesson is this. It's a long way to go for this lesson. When I read Barth's Hermeneus the first time, again, I was like, man, you're just cranky. But then when I understood his context, I was much more charitable toward him. I said, okay, I see what you're doing here. I believe that is something we're lacking today as believers. We disagree in ignorance. It's easy to paint with a broad brush and attack. And the more we try to understand, we don't have to agree. I still don't agree with some of the things Bart said, of course. Yeah. But at least I can appreciate it now. And in a conversation with Bart, I would have a much different approach than than before I understood his context. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and that can be applied to all kinds of different sociological issues, um, you know, ethical, ethical problems, um, everything, the world around. Um, I think I think probably the best thing that the best way to summarize, how do you disagree like a Christian? And so remember this disagreeing like a Christian means how do you disagree with Christians and with people who are not Christians? 
And so there are different rules for each group, okay? But there's one principle that generally applies to all, um, no matter who you are who you are debating with. Sanctified snark is reserved for Jesus, <laughs> not for us. And we struggle with this. Let's just full disclosure. Oh, I mean, I am I am a smart mouth all day long, and. Um, I'm surprised more people don't call me out on it. Um, because yeah, I can, I can get going pretty good. Um, particularly if I think I'm being funny, um, and <laughs> notice, notice words matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but, but I mean, this is the thing. There are times when you can use humor to diffuse an argument. Absolutely. You can use it to point out, um, point out where someone is going going off in a weird direction. Um, those things are valid, but we need to be thoughtful in it. So really think about think about the the greatest commands. the two the two things that are more important than than any. love God with all of your being and love peop- and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two things have to apply to how we have disagreements. Because if your goal is just to be right, well, then you're still going to be wrong in how you handled it. it. Your goal is not simply to, you know, it's a cliche to say it, but it's still true. Your goal is not simply to win an argument. Your goal is to win a person. And so it's important to note that no one has ever had their mind changed in an argument. They do have it changed in a relationship. And so think about it from that perspective. You can debate, and I I like debates. I like getting into the finer points of things. But when I debate, I debate with my friends. Yeah. And that's what and that's what helps me see what what changes my perspective, or sometimes when I change their perspectives too. Yeah, and I think that's important, Aaron, that when we for me, I struggle with this because I'd make everything personal. You know, are you're disagreeing with me, and therefore I get defensive. I want to prove I'm right and you're wrong. And as you say, that totally sets me up for a lose no matter what. I think we have to remember the issue here is: is the person aligned with God or not? Are are they aligned with God's truth or not? And if they're not, our posture should be one of concern for them, love for them, so that they become aligned with God's word and His truth. And that's a different, a totally different approach than one of a self-centered, I want to show how smart I am, or I want to be right. That's a selfless, I care about you because I want you to know God as he truly is and experience his glory and be right with him. So that stepping back and reminding ourselves of what the goal is, what the intended outcome is, is so, is, is so vital mm-hmm. for us to do. Yeah. Brian, I think that's a good place for us to wrap this up. Um, yeah, this this was good. I'm glad we talked about this passage today. Thanks for hanging out for this. And uh, thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com. <laughs>